Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. As a physician and a student of history, I have long been fascinated by the influenza pandemic of 1918. The Spanish flu, as it was called, was brought home from the battlefields of World War I by returning soldiers and found fertile ground to wreak havoc on military bases, troop transport ships and trains, and within the trenches themselves, before being introduced to the crowded cities of the early 20th century. Without the advances in public health and medicine that we now take for granted, the toll that the disease had on populations around the world was really staggering. Death toll estimates range from 18 to 35 million before the disease disappeared as suddenly as it had showed up. Since I became a doctor, I've always wondered when the next such pandemic would hit. In my mind, it was really never a question of if, but rather when. Now, in 2020, we have the answer. After several false alarms over the last decade, with things like SARS and swine flu, we find ourselves dealing with COVID-19, a disease with a mortality rate significantly higher than the Spanish flu and much more infectious. Although we have significantly better resources to deal with this virus, human nature and politics seem destined to put us on a path not dissimilar to that of 100 years ago. As always, we choose to ignore the lessons of the past and poo-poo the warnings of those who would do their best to try and warn and protect us because, again, as always, we know what's best for us and we're much more interested in self-determination and individual choice than we are in caring for our collective society. One small way that I've seen this is in the tone-deaf and incredibly self-absorbed complaining that a small number of people have taken to doing in order to voice their displeasure, not at the fact that the Ironman or 70.3 races were cancelled, but rather because they consider themselves to have been robbed of a refund. Never mind that, to my knowledge, none of these races have actually been cancelled. They have merely been postponed for the moment, with athletes given numerous options for alternative races to consider in exchange for a, post- for a postponement that was completely out of the organizer's hand. And never mind that most of the costs for these races are already paid for and non-refundable to the organizers. And never mind that the enormous losses that the communities that host these races In the minds of these people, they are the aggrieved ones, and it is they who are not being made whole, and how dare anyone suggest that they are not entitled to a full refund. Look, I understand that this pandemic has already had a significant impact on the lives of millions of people around the world. That impact for some is in the form of severe illness and even death, while for others, it's a loss of income or business failure. And I in no way mean to diminish the value of several hundred dollars that people have laid out in race fees that they could potentially use in the short term. I completely sympathize, but I still can't support that complaint. As I already said, the money is likely already spent, and Iron Man simply could not refund it. Furthermore, Iron Man has employees too, and refunding everyone means putting all of them out of work as well. My sense, though, is that people who are complaining are not doing so so much about because they need the money. Rather, It's about me, and I don't mean me personally, I mean me from the perspective of the person writing the complaint. As in, Iron Man did this to me, and they owe me something in return, and that just rubs me, the tri-doc, the wrong way. These are the kind of people that, if you did refund them, they'd simply find something else to be aggrieved about, because that's the way they see the world. In a time like this, it's important to come together. 
and see how we can help each other out and then actually do that. These me people, the ones who are complaining about not getting a refund, they, they can't be bothered. They're too busy looking for ways to see how they have been wronged and figure out who they can blame for it. I'd love it if I didn't have to see any more of these kinds of complaints, but I know that I will. In the meantime, I'll just take heart in the responses to them, the vast majority of which are significantly more understanding and generous towards the race organizers. On the show today, Michael Erickson is a Finnish triathlete and coach who now makes his home in Lisbon, Portugal. Like me, he is very interested in the science behind performance and coaching, and he hosts a podcast called That Triathlon Show, in which he delves into many subjects that are near and dear to my own heart. He joins me on this episode for a discussion on his approach to coaching and how he uses science to inform his own methods. With postponements undoing the race calendar for the foreseeable future, I've decided to suspend the triathlete routard for the time being. Once it seems that races will be set to resume, I'll bring that feature back, where I and a guest discuss and review races on the 70.3 and Ironman calendar. For the time being, I want to address the issue that is top of mind for many of you, and that is how to keep your motivation up and modify your training in the face of shelter-at-home orders and the closures of gyms and swimming pools. For the next few episodes, I'm going to be joined by different guests who will share their strategies on how they keep their drive alive and avoid receding into a black carapace with a black heart and nothing but a fifth of bourbon for company. But before all of that, as always, I have a medical question to answer. And on this episode, I want to address the question that's on everyone's mind, or rather, the questions. Why are we taking such crazy measures in the face of this pandemic? What's the worst that could really come to pass? How long can we expect this all to last? And is there anything that we as triathletes can do to protect ourselves or potentially become even more susceptible? These are crazy times, and while I don't want this podcast to join all the others out there repurposing themselves to be all about COVID-19 all the time, I think that it's probably worthwhile spending at least one episode answering some of the pressing questions about this virus and the disease. I'm guessing that it probably seems to most of you like what we're doing right now as a society seems pretty darn well extreme. We've never had to shut down entire cities and indeed states like this ever before. Uh, we're cratering the economy by closing all of our businesses, basically shutting down the tourism industry altogether. We're closing schools, professional sports, the entertainment industry, and even casinos, for goodness sakes. So it's easy to kind of sit back and ask yourself, like, why are we doing this? What makes the coronavirus such a big deal? Well, let's look at this virus and the disease it causes and consider what it is exactly that has public health workers and healthcare workers like myself so darn scared. The first thing about the coronavirus that really distinguishes it from other kinds of illnesses that have caused epidemics or pandemics in the past is that it's significantly much more lethal. The flu, for the most part, has a mortality rate of around 0.1% every year, and the flu is an epidemic-type disease. That is to say, it comes about in a seasonal-type fashion, and when it does so, it spreads across countries in a fairly predictable manner. And when it does so, it causes a large number of deaths, usually in a predictable fashion amongst the very old and the very young. But it does so in 
fairly small numbers. Even though the total numbers of people who die is large because so many are infected, the percentage of infected who die is only 0.1%. Compare that to the coronavirus, which infection rates have been significantly higher than that. In some areas, they've been as high as 8 or 9%, like we're seeing in Italy, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. But in most places, it's been reported around 3 or 4%. Now, that number's probably a little bit artificially high, because we know people die of coronavirus because we test them. And we test all the people who come to hospital who get admitted with coronavirus. But we don't get to test all the people who are out there without symptoms who have this virus. So the number of people who have the virus is likely much higher than we actually know, and that would drive the actual mortality rate down. But let's pretend that the mortality rate is even a third of what we think it is. So instead of three to four percent, it's really maybe about one percent. That's still really high. That's 10 times the mortality rate of the flu. And as you'll see a little bit later, A mortality rate of 1% is really high when you consider the fact of how infectious it is. Now, the other thing about um, this particular disease is that not only has it got a pretty high mortality rate, but it is ridiculously high in specific subsets of people. So in the A person in their 20s who gets this disease might be considered to have a fairly low mortality rate, still 1%, still 10 times what we'd expect with the flu. But if your grandparents get it, they have almost a 1 in 5 chance of dying. And that is really exceptional. Furthermore, people with comorbid illness, uh, people who have underlying diseases, specifically people with lung or heart problems, people with history of cancer, and even people with things that we would normally think of as being benign, like high blood pressure, have been seen to have significantly higher rates of mortality with this virus than we would expect, or with any other infectious diseases. And in the West, since this virus has hit the United States, we're seeing very high mortality rates even among young people. The 1% rate or the 0.5% rate being reported in China is not what we're seeing here. We're seeing much higher rates of uh, severe illness and of death in patients in their 20s and 30s, which is a little bit surprising. Now, I alluded before to the fact that this virus is significantly more infectious than most flu viruses. When we talk about the infectivity of a virus, we you may have heard of the statistic, the r naught. That basically just re- refers to how likely it is for a person who has the virus to be able to infect a number of other people. So, One of the most infectious viruses is measles. A person with measles can walk into a room and infect like 10 other people in the room if they weren't immunized. A person with the flu can walk into the room, and if nobody else in the room is immunized, the likelihood is is they'll infect maybe one, maybe one and a half to two other people in that room. A person with coronavirus is likely to infect three other people. Now, what makes coronavirus particularly dangerous is that it doesn't tend to cause symptoms for about five to seven days in most people, but during those five to seven days, they may actually be infectious. So when you consider that a person can infect three other people before they even know they have symptoms, you begin to get a sense of how dangerous this virus is and why it is so important. 
Another issue about coronavirus, which is particularly important and is particularly important to understand if you want to know why it is that this pandemic is so scary, is that it causes a very high percentage of severe illness, much more so than we see in almost any other infectious disease. With coronavirus, one in five people who are infected, no matter what their age, can be expected to become critically ill, requiring the use of an intensive care unit and even mechanical ventilation. That is to say, needing a tube placed down their throat and being put onto a mechanical ventilator. And when they're placed on a mechanical ventilator, the duration of time for patients on average to be on that machine is around two weeks. And that's going to become really important in just a moment or two. So in other words, when you're sick with this disease, you're really sick. And you're really sick for a really long time. So let's consider some of this math when we talk about coronavirus and how it could have an impact on a country like the United States. Estimates are that coronavirus could affect 10 to 30 percent of the country. In other words, 10 to 30 percent of the population could become infected. With a population base of 330 million, you're talking about 33 to 100 million people becoming infected with this virus. Now, I said one in five of those are going to become severely ill. That's 20%. So that is anywhere from 6 to 20 million people requiring intensive care units, potentially requiring mechanical ventilators. And 1% to 4% will die. So that will be 333,000 up to 4 million people dying, and that's just in the United States. Now, let's consider hospital capacity. There are 900,000 hospital beds in the United States, of which 65,000 are intensive care units. Now, you've heard a lot of discussion about flattening the curve. What that refers to is the notion that coronavirus, being as infectious as it is, is going to spread incredibly quickly if left unchecked and will infect that 10 to 30 percent of the country within a matter of weeks. So you could actually see 100 million cases of coronavirus in like a two-month period. If that happened, and 20 million of those people became critically ill requiring intensive care units, and you have a total of 65,000 intensive care unit beds in the entire country, I don't think I need to spell it out. 20 million will not be able to be accommodated by 65,000 beds. They won't be able to be accommodated by 900,000 hospital beds. And we're starting to see this in places like New York City. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you'll see that New York City is hitting the same kind of curve that we saw in Italy in terms of infection rates. They're doubling their numbers of infections every couple of days, and they're doubling their numbers of very sick patients. And those patients are all presenting at local hospitals, and the hospital's resources are being completely overwhelmed. So if you have inadequate resources to care for the number of ill, then you have to start making some very uncomfortable decisions on who gets the resources to live and who's going to be left to fend for themselves. In addition, healthcare providers who are on the front lines are continuously exposed, they themselves become sick, are then unable to care for the ill, and your system begins to spiral downward. Now that's the worst case scenario. There are better case scenarios that could potentially evolve, and we still have time to make interventions to try and see them come to fruition. We'll talk about those in a second. When we consider... In reality, it's pretty hard to predict. 
We have several things going against us, and that starts, unfortunately, at the top with a president who hasn't been taking this very seriously and doesn't support the healthcare workers to be safe and doesn't believe the healthcare experts who are surrounding him and trying to give him advice on how to manage this. We also have a populace in this country who has shunned science for years and doesn't tend to trust government. So now when government is telling them, look, this is really what you need to do, they're not necessarily lining up to listen. We also have a history of individualism in this country. People who believe in individualism more than the societal collective are going to put individual rights before the rights of everyone. And therefore, they're going to tend to do things that promote their own well-being instead of the well-being of, you know, everyone around them, including, in some cases, their own family members. So what is actually needed here? Well, you've heard a lot about social distancing, and the reason that's important is because the only way to interfere with this virus propagating is to keep it from spreading from people to people. If one person is infected and doesn't infect three other people, then you can see how the virus will stop spreading. Well, if you keep doing that over and over again, then eventually the virus will stop spreading altogether. So keeping people apart is the number one way that you can stop Another thing you're seeing a lot about in the news is the importance of testing. And the reason that testing is important is because it really helps us understand where we are in the pandemic. Right now in Colorado, for example, we're not doing a whole lot of testing. And this kind of hamstrings us as providers because we don't know exactly what to expect. So we see a number, 900 cases as of today, and that has doubled over two days. And we can expect that over the next two days, we might get to 1,800. But what if we're only seeing a fraction of the number of cases in the state? What if we're missing the fact that the number is actually doubling every 12 hours? That would be really important to know so that we could plan appropriately and get ahead of the curve and try and enact stricter measures if we needed to. Not knowing exactly who's got the disease also prevents us from being able to quarantine the right people. Right now, the only people getting tested are people being admitted to the hospital. If you come into the hospital and look like you've got the symptoms, we discharge you and kind of tell you to isolate yourself. But as I've already mentioned, people here don't tend to follow those isolation rules all that well. And if we don't know that they have the disease, we can't really force them to. And therefore, they're kind of likely to get out there and just spread it around and keep this whole thing going. Now, under the best circumstances, if we actually kept this thing under wraps and everybody maintained perfect social distancing and self-isolated and every single person who got the disease that wasn't admitted to the hospital just stayed at home and didn't expose anybody else, we kind of have an idea from what we saw in China that within about four to six weeks, we would start to see these cases disappear and we would stop seeing new cases uh, pop up. The problem is is unless that was done around the world all at once, you can't really prevent the possibility of new cases being re reintroduced by travelers coming from areas where the same kind of quarantine precautions weren't being done. So it would really have to be everywhere. And if it's not done everywhere, then that four to six week period becomes very optimistic. And you can see how this could end up taking a, a much longer time. 
Now, there's a few wild cards because there's a few different things that could come to pass that could change the whole you know, circumstance. For example, there could be new treatments that are developed that could radically change the way this disease is managed. Uh, I regret to say that anything you've heard about hydroxychloroquine, uh, that's not going to be the panacea that you may have heard. Uh, that was based on one small study, six patients. I mean, there were 40 patients in the study, but really only six of them had the disease that actually got the medicine and got better. And we don't actually know a whole lot about those six patients to tell whether or not the medication really helped them or not. There are studies going on now looking at this medication, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, but there are other things that are being looked at, and there are other things that may come to pass that show that do have some benefit. A vaccine is possible, but vaccines take a long time. We wouldn't be looking at a vaccine until at least a year from now. But if it does come to pass that a vaccine is effective, that obviously would have a major impact on whether or not this disease could be contained. Something that has happened in the past with these kinds of viral outbreaks is mutation. When these viruses mutate, they invariably become much less dangerous, unlike in Hollywood movies where viruses mutate and become suddenly significantly worse, nature tends to mutate to make things much less dangerous. So if this virus were to suddenly mutate and become less dangerous, as has frequently happened in the past, as happened, for example, with the Spanish flu to make it go away, uh, then we could actually see this end a lot sooner than otherwise would be possible. But that's the kind of thing that we really have no control over. And then there's the question of weather. Uh, there's been a lot of hope that once the weather warms up, we'll start to see, you know, basically social distancing made possible by the fact that people are outside and not staying inside together and they're spreading out and, and just naturally socially distancing. But Unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to really be the case because in areas in the southern hemisphere where it already has been summer, this virus has propagated quite well and has taken root and is causing the same kinds of problems. So the likelihood that once summer hits the northern hemisphere is going to have a major impact is pretty unlikely. So I think that, you know, given all of this, it's most likely that we're looking at several months at best before we can start to see this get better. And unfortunately, we may be looking at a year to a year and a half at the very worst before we really start this to get this under control and see it go away and get back to normal life. And so what can we as triathletes do to try and protect ourselves? Well, the most important thing is really to be vigilant. Stay away from people and I mean all people, but especially those who are sick. Hand washing is, of course, incredibly important. You know, vigorous hand washing with either alcohol-based hand sanitizers or even just with soap and water is very important and has been shown to remove viral particles and prevent people from getting sick. Self-quarantine, uh, keeping yourself away from other people when you're not sick, but certainly if you show any signs or symptoms, do not allow yourself to infect others. And unfortunately, despite what you may have read, there's no supplements and no kind of diet that boosts the immune system and keeps you from getting sick. It just doesn't work that way. If it did, we would have heard about that already and you would have seen this virus become under control. The fact of the matter is, is as long as you're eating a normal, well-balanced diet, your immune system has what it needs to work with. It just so happens that this disease tricks the immune system to actually attack your own body and cause the disease that is known as COVID-19. So having a robust immune system may actually not so much be in your favor. 
So what kinds of things can triathletes do that make it worse for themselves? Well, obviously all the opposite of the things that I talked about, training in groups, sharing water bottles, sharing nutrition, that's not going to be a good thing. But there's some other things you might want to stay away from too, like biking. Unfortunately, riding outdoors at this point is probably not going to be a good idea and in many jurisdictions is probably not going to be allowed pretty soon. California has banned all outdoor biking and swimming at this point and I think you could probably look forward to seeing that across the rest of the country pretty soon. But there are other reasons to stay off a bike at this point. Mostly, you just don't want to risk getting hurt. Uh, the hospitals are just overwhelmed with COVID cases, and you don't want to be yourself in an environment like that where you risk getting sick, but also you're not going to get taken care of, especially if what you need turns out to be something like, I don't know, a knee injury that would be an elective case, because no elective cases are going to be done for a very long time. So minimum. Another question that frequently gets asked is whether training is good or bad for the immune system. Now, I talked about this in an earlier episode of the podcast, and I'll reference it in the show notes, but training on the whole actually is good for the immune system. We know that people who are physically fit and more active tend to have more robust immune systems that actually keep us from getting ill on a day-to-day -day basis. It is true that long-duration, high-intensity efforts can transiently decrease immune function, and actually increase the likelihood that you can get a respiratory-type illness. But if you're isolating yourself properly and keeping yourself in good quarantine and social distancing, then if you're not going to expose yourself to something, you're not suddenly going to get COVID-19. It doesn't come from thin air. If you're not exposed, then it really doesn't matter what you're doing training-wise. You're not going to get it. So keep yourself safe. Keep yourself with good hand hygiene and hit the training because you're all in all going to be better off for it. Do you have a question that you'd like me to consider for answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And next time, we'll move on to something unrelated to the COVID-19 pandemic. For my interview segment today, I am pleased to be joined by triathlon coach and podcaster Michael Erickson. Michael is a triathlon coach, founder of the coaching business Scientific Triathlon, and host of the top-rated podcast, That Triathlon Show. His philosophy is to use the best of both the art and the science of coaching, and to take a pragmatic, long-term approach to training and coaching based on great consistency. His podcast blends evidence-based scientific information with best coaching practices from the best coaches in the world and aims to improve the knowledge of the listeners while staying away from dogma and emphasizing simplicity over complexity. He joins me today via Skype from his home in Lisbon, Portugal. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's begin uh, just uh, right off the top. Uh, maybe you could tell me and your and my listeners what is it you mean exactly by a scientific approach to triathlon training. Well, um, it's a good question, and uh, I think the intro that you read there—I remember writing that intro a few weeks ago, but I had forgotten what I wrote there. And as you read it, uh, I was pretty happy with how it turned out. Actually, it did give a good overview, and I think I—I I was pretty clear there with what is my opinion as a coach that there's no either or when it comes to the art and science of coaching. Like you—you you want to have both. It's kind of 
a misnomer like would you rather lose your arm or your leg when of course anybody would want to keep both of them and would benefit from keeping both their arm and their legs so so i think that we definitely need both and i may have used the term scientific approach to coaching um, in the past maybe even in the not too distant past but i'm trying to get away from that because i have come to understand that it is easily misinterpreted as uh, well if you're doing a scientific approach to training then you're doing only the type of training that you can trace back to peer-reviewed publication and that in itself is actually impossible because there is very little evidence on long-term training and adaptations so uh, I do use science a lot, of course, but uh, that's uh, more so when it comes to, or mostly when, when it comes to the physiology, understanding the physiology, the demands of a particular event, and uh, and the demands of a particular performance that we're looking for in an event. So we need as coaches to understand those basic principles very, very well, and only then can we successfully set relevant objectives for what we want to accomplish in training with a given athlete based on where they are so so that whole underpinning of how we improve an athlete is very scientific but it's also very um, fundamental it's going back to first principles understanding physiology metabolism and biomechanics and then the much more difficult step and which is also very difficult to achieve with science alone although science can help us there is how do we translate the objectives that we can set for an athlete into actual training prescriptions because that's where it gets really messy there's for any study that shows that one thing improves this this and that you can find another study that shows the opposite almost there are of course uh, exceptions to that there are some cases where we we have knowledge that this um, inter- intervention seems to work really well to improve a particular aspect of physiology or biomechanics but in many cases we need to rely at least not completely on science but uh, probably uh, more so on anecdotal evidence and to some extent on science when it comes to that second step of translating the objectives that we that we set to actual training prescriptions so um, I hope that that answers uh, that question to to some degree at least. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as a Scandinavian, uh, you're originally from Finland. Uh, I, I know that so much of uh, the research uh, coming out in terms of physiology and exercise is based on cross-country skiers. And it really has a lot of applicability to endurance athletes and triathlon. Do you leverage a lot of those articles to sort of inform your coaching and how you work with athletes? I do, yes. Uh, I'm very interested in reading them and uh, even some, a resource uh, that uh, your listeners may be familiar with is uh, the uh, Hit Science by Paul Larson and Martin Boucher. It's like a, uh, a book, a big textbook on high-intensity interval training, but they also have an online course where they have collected the best researchers and practitioners from various different sports. And I've actually taken the cross-country skiing, the cross-country skiing section of that course in addition to the triathlon and road cycling and road running uh, core as mo- modules of that course. So, so not just staying in triathlon, but actually expanding out from triathlon. And there is applicability there, but uh, I also think that you can, as I said, the, the, the findings that they have found you can also find evidence of the opposite depending on where you go. Like, for example, even though there are – so polarized training is known to come from 
in particular the Norwegian cross-country uh, skiing uh, sort of research, although it has been studied in many other demographics. But uh, And there are studies on uh, Kenyan marathon runners that have shown sort of polarized training distribution being used. But equally, you can find uh, examples, actually was just posted on our coaching business uh, Slack uh, channel, so an instant messenger channel, a week ago about uh, triathletes that used more of a pyramidal intensity distribution and and how that correlated with better performance in Ironman. So so I do read that. I do pay a lot of attention to it. I think that it's really good research and there's a lot of value to it. In particular, the value that I take away in like the most biggest thing really is that uh, a good solid base of low intensity training is beneficial for endurance athletes that i think is something that is very hard to dispute but then some of the more intricate matters of the research there i think you can find evidence also against that and so that's where I think that it works very well for some to be more polarized, but I would like to avoid getting into being very dogmatic that the polarized training is the best for each and every person. So that's yeah. sort of my take on it. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of that now. I mean, uh, it, it's almost like, as always, you get some research that shows something and everybody sort of jumps on. So you've got like eighty uh, twenty is a great example where they basically have named their company as, uh, you know, the, grabbing onto this polarized uh, doctrine and saying that it really is the only way to do things. And like you said, I think that all of these, no, no science or no published article is the absolute truth for every individual. And I think there always has to be that understanding. And that's where a coach comes in is assessing an individual and, and being able to then apply uh, these theories and understand what's best for any individual. Like you said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. So, you know, aside from some of those uh, studies that you referenced in terms of polarization and high, high interval or high intensity interval training, what other research are you familiar with or do you sort of uh, think of as being really groundbreaking in the last decade or so uh, with respect to how you coach your athletes? Well, again, I'll go back to it's not really groundbreaking at all, but the 80% sort of benefit is really from understanding human physiology and metabolism and uh, to some extent biomechanics. And biomechanics would be uh, even more important if you coach a slightly different sport like uh, like sprinting compared to uh, triathlon where it's perhaps a bit less important but still definitely not neg negligible by any means. So physiology and metabolism, which is something that uh, we have been researching for decades and decades and it's not as if there's been any revolutionary point where we suddenly had a groundbreaking groundbreaking truth uh, open up to us but it's just building layer upon layer of knowledge there and that is the fundamental of everything that we're trying to achieve in in coaching and training so so that would be the first thing that i think as a coach you have to understand the physiology uh, but uh, to give some perhaps slightly more interesting examples and slightly more niche examples i think that the research on strength training for endurance sports is really interesting and uh, it seems to be really beneficial for many reasons not least of which is the uh, improvement in exercise economy that strength training seems to seems to be uh, causing so that's something that i definitely have uh, 
used the the knowledge and the the research there is is something that I'm paying attention to and and have changed my coaching around what evidence I see coming out. Uh, and as I mentioned, interval training is another area where I pay attention to what's coming out and to some extent have made smaller changes in for things like workout prescription, like we can debate short intervals versus long intervals, just the pros and cons of each, that sort of thing. Um, I would say that this is an area where it's still a bit of a mess and there's no hard truths at all. And uh, at the end of the day, I do think that just uh, seeing the af- individual athlete's response and feedback is uh, perhaps more important there than than going by what the evidence suggests might be the best because the evidence is so mixed anyway. But there is some, there are some interesting things when it comes to interval training that that I think we can pay attention to. Uh, work to rest ratios being one of them, and and again, as I mentioned, the uh, understanding the pros and cons of how you design the uh, short or long intervals, and and applying work to rest ratios, even modalities can be important. And one final example would be nutrition, and uh, we are perhaps in in an age where uh, things like low low carb diets are in vogue, so to say. But I think most of the research that we have on even actually on low carb diets it has just uh, reinforced uh, in me really the uh, understanding the importance of carbohydrate for endurance performance and uh, how fundamental they are to to actually reach uh, your ultimate potential and this is not just training low racing high uh, that's that's really not uh, the ideal situation because if you want to reach your your ultimate potential you also need to be performing well in training so so actually nutrition would perhaps be the third example that i would uh, i would uh, say here yeah and i, I want to emphasize two of the things that uh, you just mentioned because i've talked uh, with various guests on this podcast over uh, the last year uh, and highlighted uh, both of them. Uh, one of them is strength training. Uh, had several people on this uh, podcast to discuss the importance of strength training, uh, not just uh, as you mentioned to uh, enhance economy of uh, you know being able to perform endurance activities, but also in injury prevention. Even uh, there's some research to suggest it helps with cramping. Um, I think the jury's still out on that, but uh, you know it's interesting, uh, and especially for older athletes in uh, helping uh, more senior athletes be able to, uh, you know, endure longer distance triathlon strength training is invaluable and the second thing is uh, the carbohydrates uh, you know we're seeing just i mean once again this fad diet of low carbohydrate high protein high fat uh, you know now it's under the guise of keto and uh, it's just hogwash i mean this idea that uh, you can uh, ignore carbohydrates and somehow perform in a long distance triathlon without taking in adequate amounts of sugars just seems completely ridiculous and as you said if you understand physiology you know that this just can't be um intermittent fasting is uh quite interesting i i have uh looked at the literature on that and that does seem to have some benefits uh not just in weight loss but also in performance i'm interested uh, to know if you've looked at any of the research on that I haven't personally looked much into that, no. So, so I wouldn't want to speak with any any confidence on that. I, I would be, I would say that I'm a bit skeptical, at least when it comes to athletes that train at a fairly high level and a fairly 
high consistent load and output like how it can be possible to to stay in some sort of balance while doing that but uh, that's more so from just my gut feeling than actually knowing what the research says about it but but equally i don't know of any single professional athlete that actually practices that so so it's something that i would uh, approach with a bit of care uh, yeah there's no question it's not for everybody uh, and it definitely has its limitations as you said with respect to training you have to be very careful with how you do your training when fasting Uh, but the evidence out there has been intriguing for me it's certainly not something i'm able to do given my lifestyle and the kind of work that i do Uh, it's just not conducive but for those people who are able to do it and I, like you said professional athletes it's it's not going to be likely they're going to be able to um but uh, it's interesting so um not for everyone for sure um just getting back to the science of triathlon uh, i'm just curious you know as somebody who like me is very focused on uh evidence-based sort of uh research and evidence-based uh approach to you know t- training athletes where do you think technology fits into the picture? Because there's so much tech out there, not just for training, but also for recovery and everything else. How do you sort of guide your athletes with respect to how much tech they should have in their lives and uh, how they should leverage it? Well, this is uh, a really interesting topic. And uh, I think it it really depends on, on the athlete you have in front of you. You have some athletes that really uh, they grab hold of any piece of any gadget that they can see and want to use it and then you have others that are kind of um, opposed to technology and measuring and probably the the right amount is somewhere in between i would say i think that it's for me as a coach especially coaching in a remote setting being able to uh, to see for each workout that my athletes do what sort of pace they were running what their heart rate was at their cadence, that sort of thing, that is quite invaluable, I would say. So the basic uh, measurements that we get now from our garments on our wrists and uh, heart rate straps, that sort of thing, that I would say is massive. It's very important if you want to get the most out of training. Uh, Power on the bike is I would say a great advantage over heart rate. That that being said, I don't prescribe every single workout by power. Uh, some workouts I prescribe by heart rate, even RPE, especially recovery rides. But uh, but but power is important to have as a measuring tool. And then when it comes to but but then then the the other, I guess one thing that we can get into here a little bit is uh, like there is uh, the adage of if you're not measuring you're not managing and i agree with that but then there's also the other uh, side of the coin which is and i'm going to paraphrase here because i can't remember exactly how uh, steve magnus i think is it that talks about it in his book science of of running but he talks about how measuring things gives us a false sense of importance attributed to those variables that we can measure. Uh, Actually, he says, we overestimate the importance of the things that we can measure and underestimate the importance of the things that we cannot measure. And that's something that I think is uh, is very important. And uh, one clear example of that is uh, something as... uh, fundamental as uh, quality of movement, technique, technical proficiency, whether it's uh, swimming or running, uh, even cycling to some extent. In cycling, you could perhaps exchange uh, technical proficiency with aerodynamics, which actually these days starts to become more and more measurable. But uh, still, we we 
kind of getting a can fall in a trap easily of overestimating uh, power, the importance of measuring power, measuring pace, measuring heart rate, and underestimating how are we moving, what's uh, our technique looking like, are we actually like really efficient, are we moving in a way that is also sustainable for years of training without breaking down due to injury and that sort of thing so so i think that that like or that's something that we should keep in mind as a almost like a rule of life that uh, just because we can measure it doesn't mean that it's the most important thing and then in terms of technology other gadgets rather than not just measuring but uh, well it's actually about measuring but things like um recovery as you mentioned i i do think that hrv actually has uh, has its place in sports i think hrv has a lot of good re- uh, research going behind it and i do use it uh, i think it needs to be from a validated device a validated way of measuring it and there are a lot of uh, famous uh, brands out there that provide ways of measuring it that are not validated against gold standard and that's something that i would urge um, caution with so and plus there are a lot of uh, claims that are kind of unfunded so we shouldn't or emphasize hrv either and i would always say to my athletes that how you feel in your body getting in tune with your body and how you feel is way more important than what your hrv tells you when you wake up in the morning but still i do think that that's uh, an an interesting aspect to measure that i encourage my athletes to to measure then um, a lot of other things that we, I don't know if you have any particular things you want to discuss, we can get into those. But I think that there are a lot of things that we measure that we that aren't actually actionable. I think if you measure something, you should be very clear about what is the action that I can take by measuring this, that how does this drive my decision making? And if you're not clear about that, then it probably isn't a thing that uh, is worth measuring in the first place. I tend to, as a coach, really come back quite a lot to hours of training and time in zone on a workout level and on a weekly monthly yearly basis those are some of my key performance indicators when when i review my athletes training and and those are really simple things that you can measure it doesn't have to be complicated as you mentioned in the intro yeah, that's excellent. Those are all excellent points. And uh, just for uh, any listeners who are wondering, HRV is heart rate variability and something uh, I have discussed on the podcast and had many of the same takeaways as uh, Michael just mentioned. One last question for you, Michael, and uh, this is something I'm interested in uh, hearing your perspective on. Uh, I have a lot of discussions with people who uh, are adamant that uh, their success in triathlon is limited by their genetics. Uh, They believe that when they look at pros, they just feel like, well, I mean, I can't do what they do because, you know, clearly they have, you know, DNA that I don't. What's your feeling about uh, any one individual's ability to succeed in sport? Is it written in their genes or are we able to just, is anybody comparable to anybody else based on the amount of work they put in? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, I think you can't win Kona or perhaps not even, well, you can't even qualify for Kona as a professional without having a certain, there are some people that just don't have the DNA to do that for sure. But those are the 50 best individuals on the planet. So, uh, if we take it a bit down a level, if we're talking about qualifying uh, for Kona as an age grouper, I think that the, the vast majority of people have that in their DNA to do that. But uh, that's not to say that everybody can do that, because I I think that we often underestimate just how much uh, work that is required and the right amount of work at the right time. So that may mean 
like if you are like it, it may mean that you are really at a big disadvantage if you start later in life like you might just have a real difficult time improving your technical proficiency in the sports for example um, things like mobility flexibility to get into into an aerodynamic position or getting into a good swim stroke those are things that maybe you could do at your age if you had started earlier but perhaps because you started later it becomes way more difficult so you're obviously at a disadvantage that doesn't mean that it's written in your dna that you can't qualify for kona and i still think even if you start later a lot of people could qualify for Kona for sure, but we just underestimate the amount of time and uh, work that is required. And uh, it takes years and years of training to to build a really good endurance base. Endurance base isn't something we build from November through January. It, it's just not. It's something that we build from 2020 to 2027 or something like that. So uh, so that's that's what I would say that most, most of your listeners, if not all of them, can uh, reach a relevant level of success in triathlon for sure, uh, at least theoretically, by putting in the right amount of work. And that might be a lot of work over a long time, uh, and but also doing the right work, not just doing work for the sake of doing work. But it might not be practically possible for everybody based on how busy their work and family schedules are to to put in the amount of time that it it takes. So, and then obviously you can still reach a level of proficiency, but it just takes longer to get to where you want to go. And you might reach a ceiling at uh, a lower level than if you were to, let's say, be able to train as a pro in that you have all the time and facilities available to you that, that you could possibly have. Those are excellent points and things that I always emphasize to people that it it, it takes patience, it takes a lot of time and commitment, and that your goals have to reflect what uh, your abilities are in terms of your abilities to commit to, you know, a, a timeline of su- to get to that success. So uh, all excellent points. Uh, Michael Erickson is a triathlon coach and a founder of uh, both the coaching business, Scientific Triathlon, and the uh, top-rated podcast, That Triathlon Show. Uh, I will have links to all of these things in the show notes as always. Michael, thank you so much for joining me uh, for a very interesting conversation on the TriDoc podcast today. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. With the uncertainty facing triathlon and all of endurance sports right now because of the pandemic, the triathlete Routard will itself be quarantined until we get some sense of when this will all be over. In its place, I'm happy to bring to you a new segment that I'm calling Motivation in Isolation. We've all been forced to recalibrate our goals and our training for an indefinite amount of time and an uncertain future. But in doing so, it can become difficult to maintain the positive energy and motivation that keeps us going in the first place. It's no longer dark outside, and yet here we are, toiling away in a dark space of our own making. Some people have managed to stay positive, though, and keep some type of focus, and I'm proud to say that many of them are members of my triathlon team, the Cupcake Cartel. A little while ago, I reached out to them to see if any of them would be willing to share their strategies for keeping up with their training and how they've modified things to adapt to their new circumstances. Over the next few episodes, you'll get to meet some of them and hear some of their really valuable insights. Here now 
is the first of those interviews. Sheridan Brown is joining me now from Melbourne, Australia. She has been in triathlon for the past 10 years. Uh, she works there in policy as part of the state government in Victoria. She uh, has had great success with the Cupcake Cartel, which is the same team that I have been a part of this year. She has been part of them for the last two years. She's qualified for the 70.3 World Championships this year in Taupo, if that race uh, continues. Uh, thus far, no word, of course, that's still a long Long ways to go, but uh, you know, fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Apart from triathlon, uh, Sheridan has uh, been dipping her toes into the biathlon uh, pond, if you will. That is a winter sport, of course, but uh, she is one of the few Australians to take up the cross-country skiing and shooting sport. That, of course, is uh, unlikely to take place this winter as well, and she is struggling with uh, how to get around training for that. For 2020, she's had several races that have been cancelled, uh, local half marathons, Challenge Shepparton, Port Macquarie 70.3. She still has a couple of races on the calendar that she's hoping will uh, take place, Sunshine Coast 70.3, the Ironman World Championships, as I mentioned, and then the Melbourne 70.3 scheduled for November. But right now, she's taking some time out of her schedule uh, to join me to talk a little bit about how she's keeping her motivation going and also uh, what she's doing to modify her training since her races are cancelled and and her pools are going to be closed. Sheridan, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. Uh, it's great to be here and chat with you. So, Sheridan, when you think about the races being cancelled, it's a gut punch, I'm sure. Uh, what was your initial impression as uh, the scope of the pandemic really sort of came into focus as it was going to affect triathlon? Well, it started to happen here quite gradually. And of course, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of speculation about what's going to occur, what will Ironman do, what will local organisers do. Uh, so what was firstly uh, uh, the, the upcoming races postponed and then cancelled and now we have nearly everything cancelled. We're probably in the second half of our summer season here. So many people haven't raced their A races, uh, I being one of them, my A race Port Macquarie uh, in May postponed and now I think there's a race on to reschedule races but of course we don't know uh, when that'll be occurring. There's just so many unknowns, a lot of disappointment and uh, I guess a, a bit of where to now, what do we do going forward? Right. Um, the Cupcake Cartel is an Australian-based uh, team, and uh, there's a large contingent of athletes out there, and that has to help, I imagine, even with the social distancing that's required, just being able to lean on people that you have around there, that I imagine having that kind of social network has to help a little bit. Oh, you, you are absolutely correct. I think having the people there, not so much near me. I'm in Melbourne. We don't have too many cupcakes here, I don't think. Uh, but having people on the socials, as you mentioned, it's such a support in this time when no one knows really what, what to do, how should we proceed. And it's been great to share ideas and support because I'm sure you know every time you go into your socials at the moment, it's all um, pandemic and despair and, and what to do. And it's nice to have some uplifting moments and some good friends online to help out. What has been your strategy to kind of keep your motivation and your focus with your training since you really don't know when you're going to be able to race again? Well, I, like most people, have been pretty flat. I think that's the theme across the board for, for most endurance athletes and probably any athlete having looked at our race calendar and seen, well, I've got no races scheduled now. Where's my motivation going to come from? What will I do with my time? And I've I think I panicked initially and tried to plan a lot of things and remove my programs from training peaks and what can I put in to fill this hole. And I've since realised that it's okay to perhaps reflect for a moment 
maybe the hole doesn't need to be filled this week. Perhaps I will let the situation unfold around me a little bit and then I can look at things that I've perhaps been wanting to do in my training, perhaps some of the one percenters that I've not been able to address because I've been too busy with my long rides and my long runs, maybe uh, my strength program that I've been trying to really get uh, consistent and kick that in. Now's my window. Now's my opportunity. I've been given this additional extra time, I guess. Um, what can I do now? And that's what I've earmarked. I'm going to jump on those uh, rehab exercises that my physio gives me that, let's face it, we all comply for about a week. And then that sort of trails off as we move back to our regular training regime. I'm going to look at those again and work on some of my weaknesses there and jump right into my strength program. And I think I'm going to lift really heavy. It's something that I guess endurance athletes don't do that often because you don't want to lift heavy on the Tuesday, then your long run or your, your tempo run is destroyed uh, for the next three days. And I think that now's my window with no race around the corner to jump right into that. And I'm really looking forward. I love lifting heavy things. Now, can you do that at home or do you have to, like, where do you have set up to lift heavy things? Well, eventually I will run out of heavy things. And I think that's a progression that I look forward to. Uh, we're, as you mentioned, we're a little bit behind in Australia here as our situation evolves. Some gyms are still open. I think that's a, a situation that will probably change. Um, I don't, can't really comment or speculate on that, but I do have a lot of stuff set up here at home. I'm in a pretty small apartment. We have a tiny balcony. Uh, we've got some weights and, um, and heavy things here that I can lift and some mirrors so I can uh, check out my form. I will eventually run out of things, but I think I've probably got enough to keep me going. And I guess I'll address that when the time comes. And that's a great, uh, you know, that's a great perspective and a, a great attitude because uh, I have been proselytizing pretty much since the beginning of this podcast uh, about the importance of strength training. And you raise an excellent point that a lot of people tend to neglect strength training when they're really focusing on the long rides and long runs. They don't want to, you know, set themselves up for uh, difficulties. And this really is an opportunity to try and focus on that. The, the limitation, of course, being that you have to have some of the equipment. Uh, I, as a coach, have actually been giving my athletes uh, body weight strength training. Uh, it takes a little bit longer to do because it's not as uh, efficient, obviously, if you don't have heavy things. But, um, uh, you know, you still can get things done. So good on you for, for that uh, sort of attitude. Um, when the race isn't there sort of as the goal, uh, have you changed uh, your outlook in terms of goals? Have you sort of refocused yourself to think, okay, um, you know, this is going to be my goal for the next six weeks. I'm going to, you know, aim for this. Is there something that you've set for yourself? I don't know that I've solidified uh, where I'd like to be or as, as an end goal at this stage. I did start thinking quite loftily and going, okay, if they're rescheduling my races to October, November, let's aim to be really fit by then. But what does that mean? And once I've identified what that means, how am I going to get there without the regular access to training? Um, so I've taken a step back and gone, how about some smaller term goals? Uh, and so my weightlifting is one of them and I'm looking to, to get up to a, a decent level of kilos um, in my squats. I'm also looking at bumping up my FTP. I don't know what sort of numbers I want to be looking at. Can I get this up 20 watts? Can I get this up 40 watts? What's suitable? Um, I'm looking around also at the resources that are available to me and what I might be able to insert as a fun goal. We don't really have many fun goals in triathlon. They're all pretty serious. Uh, and now's the time. Now's my opportunity to go, well, I've got a lot of stairs in my apartment complex. Can I perhaps do some stair work? Um, again, not something I do during the season or pretty much during any time of my training. 
for triathlon or endurance sports. It's jumping and running upstairs is not really what we do. Um, now's the time to shake it up, if you ask me. I've always wanted to. Yeah, Why not yeah, yeah. now? Do yeah. a few crazy things. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it causes a lot of pain and discomfort, then I continue for two weeks. If the pain and discomfort is still there, I'm probably doing it wrong. Um, but um, so that's one of my goals, to get out into the car park, do some sprints, um, do some stairs. I would like to have a set of rippling abs. That's something um, – I'm over 40 now, and I did think that my opportunity had sailed to have quite a muscular physique. Um, I find the weightlifting helps me with weight control. I'm not trying to ditch a bunch of weight, but I do like to maintain, and everyone likes to feel good in their tri suit because there's nowhere to hide out there on race day. There's, if you, if you, you need to suck it in, and if, if you haven't been um, watching what you eat – and taking care of your diet and your health, then that shows. So I'd like to have a nice set of muscles. I'd like to come out of this looking really ripped. I know that sounds superficial, but that's a goal to me. And um, I think that during the season I've gone, oh, well, that doesn't matter. I don't have time. I'm too busy running. I'm too busy cycling. I'm too busy swimming. Now I won't be doing swimming. Um, there's a couple of hours a week at least that I can devote uh, to thinking about how I'll become so ripped. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I think a lot of people listening are going to love that. So that's great. Uh, so speaking of swimming, w are you going to do anything to try and manage the absence of swim training? Are you going to try and incorporate anything to try and simulate that? Or are you just going to say, you know what, I'll just deal with that when I get back in the water? Uh, well, secretly, um, just between us, um, a part of me is celebrating because I've been finding it really difficult lately to, to get into swimming. I've been finding every excuse under the sun to not go to the pool. There's no lanes available. It's raining. Any excuse that I can find, the ocean is literally at my doorstep. Um, it's a one-minute walk to the beach here, and it's not particularly a pleasant beach, but it's an option. So what I don't really want to lose is my technique because I think we all know that feeling when you get back to the pool after a break away for the first two, three weeks, you're gasping at the end of each lane and it doesn't feel good it doesn't feel great to have to come back to swimming and sort of remind your body of all those movement patterns and you always feel so unfit when you're doing it and it's horrific i'm trying to avoid that i don't think i can but my options are the pools are still open here again that that's not going to last my options are to head over to the ocean and perhaps maybe there's an option to throw the wetsuit on and, and jump in and potentially do a couple of sets of one, 200 metres to maintain the form. Look, I've not really thought out that idea. I guess I'll wait and see who else joins me. I find it a bit easier to get in the cold ocean when there's someone else there. So that's an option for us here and one that I realise not everyone has. I know there's dry land exercises. Um, I haven't investigated them. They don't really do anything for me. So, But I'd love to be educated. So... I'm sure we'll hear about some things people are doing indoors that we can all hopefully steal. Um, but look, big picture, on race day, I don't think that I'm losing a lot of time in the swim. I think I get more bang for my buck in the ride and the run, which is where I focus most of my training anyway. So I'm trying to not panic about losing the swim time. That's fair. That's all fair. I think a lot of people are going to have the same sort of feeling and approach as you. Um, what fears do you have sort of going forward, both, you know, for yourself, but also for the sport? Um, I don't know what's going to happen is my main fear. I think triathletes 
um, as part of the endurance community, are, are exceptional control freaks. And there'll be a lot of struggle with not knowing what's happening and not being able to plan out 12 weeks of anything or even 12 hours of anything at the moment. And I think people will struggle with that. And I think that's very much linked to motivation. Even on this morning's ride, it's a it's a routine weekend for me here to get up, put my kid on and go out on a ride. But I really didn't want to. I couldn't tell you why. It's I, I've got nothing to ride for, I guess. So I guess my main fear is I don't, I don't know what I'm doing really. And I think that that's probably a feeling everyone has. I'm not so much concerned at the moment for my own personal health. I am concerned uh, that I might do something to contribute to the the downfall of our health system here, um, which is personally why I'm trying to isolate as best as I can. Um, but yeah, the, the main fear, what's going to happen? What will triathlon look like at the end of this? Uh, will we all be doing virtual races? When can we do normal races again? We, can we do normal races again? Will I, I'm assuming that will happen, surely. But I simply don't know. And I guess that's my biggest fear. Yeah. So how are you managing emotionally? I mean, this, this is a tough time. Like you said, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. How, how, do, how are you sort of, you know, dealing with all of it? I've got really poor discipline and I'm trying to work on that. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that wakes up in the middle of the night and in my head I say to myself, just close your eyes and go back to sleep. But, of course, I roll over and I check Twitter and that's the worst thing to do. Um, and I think that's a cycle that repeats itself through the day. You know, I'm still at work, so I go into work. I do some work. I take a break. I check the news. I check Twitter. I'm all over my socials. And it's that, that cycle that keeps going. And I've been trying to break that down um, and limit my time on the socials. They're just covered in, in panic and trauma at the moment. Uh, every now and then you get a glimmer of hope. And I, I think that's fantastic when someone posts a good news story or something totally separate from this particular health dilemma that we're having. Um, I've got a lot of people around me to support me. My family and my friends are all well and healthy. Um, so that's a big bonus for me. Um, but I, I am concerned about the schools here. We haven't quite shut our schools yet. I'm not sure what's happening in that space. Um, and I'm concerned that, that not everyone is on the same page. There's a lot of confusion. So I guess I've turned to something that I've always thought was a little bit cosmic, and that is yoga. Uh, I've had to jump on YouTube and look up some some yoga p poses. Um, I've not believed in yoga or anything like that before. It's all a little bit out there and cosmic for me. But at, at the moment, I think I need to get away for five minutes from my socials and perhaps get in a particular pose and just rest, rest my brain for five minutes. Um, it's a tough one. Um, yeah. I'm used to move. We move all the time. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, so to sit still and not have anything in front of me and really not be moving is is a challenge. But I think that's going to be really useful for me moving forward. Yeah. Uh, we, with the time that you have left, I'd love to chat a little bit about biathlon. How did you get into that in Australia? I don't even really remember how it came about, which is exactly how I got into triathlon. It just sort of comes up on you. It was potentially after la the last Winter Olympics, and I know there was a, uh, an athlete from one of the African nations, um, and he was featured heavily in the media here because, of course, you don't. There's not a, there's no snow in those areas that I'm aware of. No snow fields for them to train, and he was featured in nearly every sport. He qualified in about six different sports, and I decided I'd have a go at cross country skiing. I mean, how hard can it be? It's really just it's kind of running, but on skis. Um, it's really quite hard. 
I um, went out to the I went out to the snow last season when uh, when it was snowing, and I said I'd like to hire a pair of these cross country skis, the the, um, the skinny ones. And uh, they looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, everyone looked at me like I was crazy because I simply didn't know what I was doing. Look, I still don't, but now I can actually ski a little bit. Um, I've been doing a little bit of shooting. Uh, it's quite a, a regulatory process here to jump through all the hoops to get your license and to be allowed to have um, have a rifle. Um, so that's been an educational process in itself. And at the moment, my ski skills don't really allow for skiing with a rifle, maybe a pen or a pencil or a bit of paper. <laughs> I simply don't have those skills. And I was hoping this season might be my chance to actually participate in a race. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. And, of course, going forward, I'd love to go over to Europe or even to, to the US and, and see some of the races that you guys have over there because it's a phenomenal sport um, and such a niche thing here, but but shooting's very cathartic. To lay there and focus so hard on something without moving is again the opposite of what I'm used to doing. So I find that quite relaxing. Well, Sheridan Brown is a budding biathlete, but she has uh, quite a career in triathlon as well. Uh, she is like the rest of us dealing with the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that has taken uh, much of the world and really shaken it up, uh, including cancellation of just about all of her races for 2020. I am very hopeful that uh, the World Championships at the 70.3 distance will take place in Taupo this year so that we will get to meet in person there. Um, so that will be nice. Uh, but uh, whatever shall come to pass, stay safe, stay healthy. And thank you so much for joining me to share some of your thoughts and some of the things that you're doing to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself training through uh, what is a very difficult time. Thanks. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another interview with someone from the world of triathlon, another medical question to answer, and another episode of Motivation in Isolation. Until then, train hard, train healthy, wash your hands, stay COVID-free.